understand. Um, it's going to be a bit um, eclectic um, this week. Uh, no particular um, logic uh, to the order I've uh, um, sort of put things down. Anyway, to begin, um, big, big sort of political fuss being made at present uh, in terms of British politics with um, uh, migrants crossing the English Channel, often in um, extraordinarily fragile craft um, with far too many uh, people um, um, on them. And uh, we've, we've got uh, Pretty Patel, the um, Home Secretary, um, calling upon uh, the Ministry of Defence uh, to organise help. Um, what exactly that is meant to be, um, I have to say, is a little bit beyond me, uh, because as I understand it, um, in terms of, um, um, how should I put it, basic operating uh, procedures, um, if you intercept uh, one of these boats, um, the danger is that if you start to block their path, if you start to um, haul them back uh, to Calais or some other part of France, there's always the danger that someone will either deliberately or accidentally uh, fall into uh, the water and potentially drown. Um, so is it the Navy that she's calling upon? Or is it the army? Well, what's the army uh, going to do? Is it going to sort of police the White Cliffs of Dover and shoot up uh, migrants uh, uh, coming in? To me, it, it, it strikes me as very much uh, a political gesture that something must be done uh, because uh, uh, the flow of uh, migrants is some sort of national uh, crisis. Uh, it has to be said that even in terms of its peak, we've had apparently uh, last Thursday 235 migrants uh, crossing uh, the English Channel. As far as I know, uh, they all get picked up. Uh, and what the British government uh, objects to is them claiming political asylum in Britain. They go to great lengths, apparently, as they travel uh, through Europe uh, uh, to actually avoid... Uh, claiming a political asylum because, you know, the rhetorical question, but who, if you come from um, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, who would want to claim political asylum in Greece or Bulgaria or Austria or even for that matter France? Uh, the reality is that if we look back at history, uh, there's a good reason uh, why they choose Britain uh, as uh, their preferred destination and go to extraordinary trouble uh, to actually avoid having their fingerprints taken, uh, to avoid uh, um, being involved with the authorities in terms of their journey across Europe. And it, it's called the English language. So the chances are that if you're born in Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, that if you've got a second language, the chances are uh, that it would be English. English in part uh, because of the imperial legacy uh, of the British Empire, in part uh, because uh, um, global hegemony um, 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 was taken over 
uh, by uh, the English-speaking uh, United States. So really, uh, for a couple of centuries, the, the dominant language uh, in terms of uh, business and now certainly uh, diplomacy um, uh, has been English. Uh, and, you know, like I know it's self-selecting, uh, but the BBC, for example, when it interviews uh, migrants wanting to cross from France to England, have no trouble uh, in talking to most of them. Most of them have either a smattering uh, of English or good English. Also what they have, though, uh, again, for the same reasons I've just talked about, is they also have contacts in Britain. So father, brother, cousin, someone from the same village, someone from the same university um, will be in uh, Britain uh, already. So that's the, the pull uh, of these people. And compared with what they're leaving, it's not that Britain is a promised land, but compared with the hell that they're leaving, uh, yes, it's a far better prospect. Okay. So, in terms of um, this whole uh, question, I think it is worthwhile um, looking back. Um, although it comes as a surprise to some people, uh, if we look at uh, the introduction of passports, uh, this had nothing to do uh, with, um, how should you put it, um, a border checks um, in the modern sense. You know, if you look at your passport, uh, if you look at your British UK passport at least, it says something along the lines of um, um, the bearer of this document um, is under the protection of the British government. So in other words, if you lived in Victorian times, you produce your passport uh, and it was basically, I've got Queen Victoria uh, uh, as my protector as a traveller. British diplomacy will look after me. The fact of the matter was that in Victorian times uh, you would have no trouble uh, other than robbers and the sort of normal day-to-day -day, uh, problems of being a traveller either walking uh, over Europe, riding on a horse uh, or getting a boat. Uh, and indeed, you know, if you talk uh, to old people about their relatives and how they came here. Uh, I know, um, in terms of people from Italian descent, uh, that their ancestors, you know, great-granddad or whatever it happens to be, actually walked to Britain from Italy. Of course, they have to get a ferry uh, over the English Channel, uh, but they were free to walk over the continent of Europe. And the only exception uh, to that was the Tsarist Empire, uh, which had a system of internal passports, uh, that if you were a serf, uh, um, they would demand your papers. And if you didn't have your papers, uh, then you were in trouble. So in terms of Britain, um, I don't know the date, but it was in the early uh, 20th century when they had the first um, um, immigration laws, anti-immigration laws, I'm hastening to add. And that was introduced by uh, Balfour, Lord Balfour. And uh, what was it designed to do? Stop Jews from Eastern Europe, but crucially uh, from the Russian Empire, people who are escaping poverty, uh, but also pogroms. Uh, these people wanted to head west, 
um, and amongst their destinations, of course, uh, was Britain. So, of course, some went to Germany, some went to Austria. Um, if you had the money, uh, you went to uh, America, uh, but lots ended up in Britain, and that was not to the liking of the Tory party, and to its disgrace, it was not to the liking of at least some sections of the Labour movement in Britain. So at one Labour Party conference, they actually voted against uh, Jewish migration, uh, and a similar thing happened at a TUC uh, Congress. Um, interestingly, the arguments put forward um, uh, by both labour rights and uh, uh, trade union officials is that Jews were natural capitalists. Uh, and even if they were poor, uh, these people would side eventually with the bosses. It's interesting, uh, therefore, that if you take Lord Balfour and the Tories, they argued the exact opposite. Uh, they said that Jews uh, are uh, natural troublemakers, uh, they are natural socialists, they're anarchists, uh, they are Marxists, and uh, they are to be kept out uh, for those reasons. Uh, you can see in Hitler and Mein Kampf how those two ideas uh, were fused uh, together. Uh, the, the Jews were both natural bankers uh, uh, and cosmopolitan uh, revolutionaries. Of course, something uh, that was argued for way back uh, by Mikhail Bakunin, uh, the founder of uh, modern um, uh, anarchism. Okay. Um, in terms of um, uh, our position, it uh, really stands on, um, you know, classical Marxism. We were speaking last week about the Second International. It is worthwhile talking uh, about uh, the Second International in terms of migration, uh, because if you take the labor movements of both Britain, the United States, they in particular were strongly opposed to either yellow uh, migration, that's in America from Japan, but also from China against coolie labor. Uh, the same uh, applied as I'd already talked about uh, in Britain uh, with the TUC and uh, uh, the Labour Party. And to its credit, uh, the Second International came out uh, against those uh, national chauvinist uh, positions in defense of the free movement of people. People should be free to move to where they choose. It should be stressed, however, uh, that the Second International, in terms of its uh, resolution on the question, and ourselves, don't leave it there. Uh, it needs to be stressed uh, that uh, we are fully uh, uh, aware uh, that most people move not because they have some hankering uh, for the wonders of America or the wonders of uh, the United Kingdom, but because the conditions of where, from where they come from are intolerable, uh, i.e. Uh, uh, there's extreme poverty or there's extreme uh, political uh, oppression. Uh, and if we look at the uh, current example, all one needs to say is, what is Iraq, what is Iran, uh, what has uh, um, Afghanistan uh, got in common? Well, Iran at the present time is under a severe uh, economic siege. Uh, there's a threat of war 
against it. And of course, since 1979, there's been the uh, Khomeini regime. Uh, but of course, before that, there was the Western-backed Shah, uh, his uh, um, white uh, revolution, uh, his dreams of uh, some sort of great Iran, fully backed uh, by the United States, and of course, no political opposition, uh, especially from the left, uh, was brooked. What about Iraq? What about Afghanistan? Well, all you need to say is wars. Uh, wars organized uh, by Britain, wars organized uh, by the United States, and as a result of that, millions of refugees. The same obviously applies uh, to Syria. Uh, the interference not only of Turkey, uh, but crucially, I would say, uh, the Gulf states uh, and Saudi Arabia, which turned what was a revolutionary movement uh, against the Assad regime very quickly uh, into a counter-revolutionary uh, um, hellhole. So our position um, isn't simply to say that uh, migration is a great thing and the mixing of cultures is a great thing, which it is, uh, we all benefit uh, from the mixing uh, of cultures, but we recognize uh, that often uh, this is being forced upon uh, people, that this is involuntary. And it's involuntary, but in, in the context uh, of um, the organization of the world and the world economy um, under its um, uh, hegemon. First of all, of course, British imperialism, and now the United States uh, and what we also need to understand finally on that question is, of course, the United States, although it remains the world hegemon, is a declining power and it no longer organizes, um, how should I put it, um, uh, countries. It, it does the exact opposite. It, it brings disorganization. Uh, it brings state breakdown. Uh, that's what the United States now visits uh, uh, upon uh, countries. So a complete change about uh, compared with the aftermath uh, of World War II, the Marshall Plan uh, and all the rest of it. Okay, moving on slightly uh, in that theme, um, I just thought I would try to tackle uh, the use uh, of the N-word. In, in Britain you have to say the N-word. Uh, this is because the word nigger um, is equivalent of actually killing someone. I mean, that, that's how it uh, would appear. Um, so we have, um, in terms of the BBC, a guy called Sideman, uh, a.k.a. David Whiteley, resigning uh, from the BBC. He's a, uh, um, a DJ, uh, resigning because in a local BBC report, uh, there was a case of... Um, some rapper, but also an NHS worker who goes by the name of K or K Dog, uh, who was attacked, and, and clearly this attack had a, a, a racist uh, motivation, uh, and the police were looking into not only an attack using a car, uh, but a racially motivated attack, because in the course of the attack, uh, uh, this individual K uh, was called a nigger. And with the permission of Kay's family, uh, the BBC reported that. And as a result of that, there's been 18,656, that was my uh, count last night, complaints to the BBC. 
as well as 384 complaints to Ofcom. Now, I readily understand uh, that uh, if you take racist um, insults, if you take sexist uh, uh, insults, uh, we don't want to use uh, those words. We don't want to insult someone uh, because of their race, because of their sex, uh, because of their sexual uh, orientation. On the other hand, I also note uh, that if you look at uh, people who are often on the receiving end uh, of these uh, um, insults, uh, these words that are deliberately meant to hurt you, often uh, the case is uh, that these people take those words uh, and turn them into their opposites, turn them into uh, a badge of honour. So, for example, what do um, the anti-racist authorities do about Tottenham Hotspur supporters? That's a football club. This is for our uh, comrades who are living, who don't know British culture, who are living abroad. Um, if you take Tottenham Hotspur uh, Football Club, which is a, a, club, a football club in North London, which has a following of a lot of uh, Jewish fans, um, uh, their opponents would chant Yid, 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 Yid. Uh, uh, at them. Now, if you go to Tottenham Hotspur uh, football ground, uh, the home team uh, actually shouts, uh, uh, on with the Yids, we're the Yids. Uh, they view it as, a, uh, as I said, a badge of honour. The same thing's happened um, with um, homosexuality, uh, that in my younger days, if you were called queer, uh, that was an insult. Now we have in universities queer studies. Uh, an amazing uh, turn uh, about. I can also look uh, uh, deeper into history. Um, again, I'm not going to go into the um, exact evolution of it, but as I understand it, uh, the term Welsh uh, had its origins in the word foreigner. Uh, this is used by uh, the English or the Anglo-Saxons, and it was synonymous with the word slave. Uh, that if you were Welsh, you were a slave. Uh, that's how the word was used. It certainly was an insult. If we take the word Slav, uh, because the Vikings uh, in the east, uh, the Rus, uh, going down uh, the Volga to trade slaves uh, with Byzantine, uh, tended to enslave Slavic uh, people. Slave and Slavic again uh, became uh, synonymous. Um, we can also look at another insult word, it's now viewed as an insult, the word Eskimo. Why is the word Eskimo an insult? Because this is not what people who are Eskimos called themselves. This is what someone else uh, called them. Most native peoples simply call themselves, we're the people. Um, they call someone else something else, uh, but amongst themselves, we're the people. Anyway, um, in terms of this word nigger, um, um, I think we should uh, bear in mind uh, what uh, Sideman said, and he said uh, that what disturbed him is the fact that this was used by a white person. Uh, and I can understand uh, that, because we do have a situation of where if you take rap culture, not that I'm an aficionado, uh, but the word nigger is often used uh, by black rappers uh, to identify themselves. And, of course, we have the group, niggers with attitude, and also I think it's worthwhile, again, uh, in terms of uh, how this word is used and uh, context is everything, Cassius Clay or was he Muhammad Ali uh, at the time, I don't know.
but saying why he refused uh, to be drafted into the U.S. Army. And his uh, reply was, no Vietnamese, no Viet Cong ever called me uh, nigger. Um, so it's a complex question. And what I'm reminded of in that sense um, is looking at the Bible and how uh, Jews, Orthodox Jews, and we're going way back, uh, um, you know, <laughs> way over a thousand years, would not use the name of God. Uh, that was something that was completely forbidden. Most of us would have seen uh, the film um, The Life of Brian. Um, and if you look at many versions of the Bible, um, even if they don't use the word Yahweh, um, you can see versions of the Bible where the name of God, G-O-D, is simply spelled G, missing the O, and then D, because you cannot use the name of God. Uh, this is something that's sacrilegious. And I myself think that uh, elevating the N-word uh, to this level almost mystifies it. Uh, I think it's uh, dangerous, because the fact of the matter is, when the BBC uses the word N-word, uh, we all know uh, what it means, because we all have it in our head. Um, so although uh, we don't have um, agitated air coming out with that uh, word, uh, we have it lodged uh, in our psyche. And I think that the, the real question uh, is to actually fight uh, racism and chauvinism um, and the conditions which produce racism uh, and uh, chauvinism. And as part of that, uh, I think that reappropriating uh, words uh, can clearly play a role. Uh, all I would say, uh, just from our point of view, that it's clear if you look at history, the word Marxist uh, was uh, first employed by enemies of Marxism, and the same is true uh, with Leninism and many other uh, words. So words have a malleability. They have an ability uh, to flip into their opposite. They don't have uh, a fixed uh, meaning or a fixed power uh, in and of uh, themselves. That is to fetishize uh, uh, language. Okay, moving now uh, to Lebanon. Uh, we have uh, uh, huge demonstrations, a seizure, I don't know if they're still in occupation of it, by demonstrators of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We know what the trigger of these demonstrations uh, was. It was the August the 4th, huge explosion in the port area uh, of Lebanon. When I first heard the news, I went, who's done that? Uh, I, I thought, first of all, Israel, then I went, no, they, they couldn't possibly. Well, what, what, what advantage is there to Israel to have such a huge explosion in the port area of uh, uh, Beirut? Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it's not going to be Hezbollah. It's not going to be the enemies of Hezbollah. It could be ISIS. And, and then I heard the story about the 2,750 tons of uh, 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 nitrate um, uh, and then said, ah, right. And then I heard the story about it being an accident. And then I heard the story uh, about a ship that was basically, you know, not seaworthy, being seized and the cargo being unloaded, and then you get the general idea of not only is global shipping totally anarchic uh, at the present time, uh, but so is Lebanon. 
and uh, who whoever was in immediate charge of it, uh, and I think seven people are under house uh, detention or some other number like that. The real culprit here is the institutions of uh, Lebanese um, society uh, itself. And to understand that, uh, we've got to go back to the origins of Lebanon, and the origins of modern-day Lebanon uh, lie in the breakup, uh, the dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire uh, in the aftermath of World War II by victorious uh, Anglo-French imperialism. And these two great imperial powers divide up the uh, Middle East, divide up uh, the former uh, um, Ottoman Empire. British imperialism had already divided up uh, Persia, uh, what we now call Iran, into a sphere of influence in the south uh, um, uh, for Britain and a sphere of influence by Tsarism in the north because what happened at the turn of the century is a shift from coal-powered uh, uh, navies uh, to oil-powered uh, navies. Oil power uh, can keep you at sea longer uh, and provide you with greater uh, speed. So Churchill, as uh, first law Lord of the Admiralty oversees the shift of the British Navy, as I said, from coal power to oil power, and for that you need oil fields, and so hence Britain's interest in Persia. Um, we then have, because there's other discoveries of oil in the Middle East, uh, the dividing uh, uh, up of uh, the Ottoman Empire uh, according to straight lines uh, and uh, um, the extraction of oil, in particularly in the north of Iraq, but also in the south uh, of uh, Iraq. Uh, but also what happens is that in 1917, Lord Balfour, uh, the Lord Balfour of immigration controls and anti-Jewish propaganda, the Zionist anti-Semitic Lord Balfour, uh, he uh, um, and uh, the government in Britain want to uh, carve out uh, of the um, um, Ottoman Empire a little Jewish Ulster uh, that will be loyal to the British Empire and can be used to police uh, uh, the new empire of Britain in uh, the Middle East. So uh, the plan uh, to have a, a Zionist colony, a Jewish population um, in Palestine uh, is something uh, that has its origins here and the same is true to the north of uh, Palestine, i.e. the Lebanon. Um, these uh, uh, areas are carved out of the Syrian, uh, the Ottoman Syrian province of Syria. And what you have is a calculation very similar uh, to the creation of Northern Ireland by uh, Lloyd George, is a calculation of maximization of territory um, um, uh, that it is in conformity with a Christian majority in Lebanon. So, so Lebanon is designed to be a Christian outpost for the French uh, Empire, something that goes back uh, to Napoleon III, uh, but something that's realized uh, uh, at the end of uh, World War I. And what you have is uh, a census um, it's the only one that there's been uh, that we uh, know of 
um, um, since, and that's in 1932, uh, which showed that there was a Christian majority. That's my understanding. And what you have is a constitution that was written in 1943. So I presume this is when France is, um, how should I put it? I presume this is de Gaulle, but I don't want to push myself um, much further. Anyway, 43. So this presumably is um, uh, Germany looks like it will be defeated. Uh, I don't want to push my luck any further with this one. Anyway, you get a 1943 constitution, and this is based on the 1932 constitution, and it's based on a 6 to 5 ratio between Christians and uh, Muslims. It's much more complex than that because you get uh, the Druze, uh, for example, which I presume, but I don't know, count as Muslims, even though they're not Muslims. Anyway, I don't want to push myself too much on that one. But the point would be that what we end up with is a confessional state. Um, and what you have in uh, Lebanon is a variety of uh, Christian denominations, but the biggest one is Maronite Christianity, uh, you have a variety of um, uh, Muslim uh, confessional um, 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 positions, but in the biggest is Sunni, uh, the next one um, is Shia, uh, but you also get the Druze, and if you look at the distribution of seats in uh, the Lebanese parliament, it's according to this formula. Uh, that is what uh, uh, modern Lebanon was based on. So it's, it was based on this 1932 census. Now that was changed after the Civil War, and in 1990, instead of having a 6 to 5 ratio, it became a 50-50, a 1 to 1. So if you look at the Lebanese parliament, if they had 100 seats, 50 of them will be reserved for uh, Muslims, 50% uh, uh, reserved for uh, Christians. Um, so we have a similar thing um, um, in Northern Ireland, remember that the left voted for the Good Friday uh, Agreement, which institutionalized sectarianism. Uh, the difference in Lebanon is you don't have two camps, uh, you have a multiplicity um, of camps. And when we're told about the population in Lebanon not trusting its politicians, I'm sure that's the case, um, because uh, everyone is a minority. Um, we're also told about endemic corruption, and I'm sure that's the case as well. But we need to understand the corruption in Lebanon of not being so much about individual corruption, and I'm sure that is there, but clientism. In other words, if you are a Maronite politician, uh, you're not elected in order to serve, in reality, uh, the whole of the population. You don't have in your head, I must look after um, uh, the Sunni population. I must look after the Druze population. I must look after the best uh, um, of uh, the interests of all Lebanese. No. Uh, your job is to look after the people that vote for you. The, your job is to dole out housing, jobs, favours, uh, business deals uh, to your population. Um, and that can involve kickbacks, I don't deny it, uh, but by definition, uh, this is not an even uh, playing field. This is about what each community can grab 
for itself. So the same operates uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, that Sinn Féin is the party uh, of uh, the nationalist Catholic population, uh, the Ulster Unionists, the DUP, are the party of the Protestant stroke Unionist uh, population, except, as I said, in Lebanon, it's all so much more complex. And, of course, also what we've had uh, is not only civil war, uh, uh, we've also had uh, mass uh, uh, migration, forced mass migration uh, into Lebanon um, from the south uh, with the Palestinian population, and also more recently with what, I don't know, one million, two million people uh, um, from Syria, uh, which given the population of four million, is a huge percentage uh, of the population. And of course, as a result of uh, this, but also the economic uh, meltdown uh, of the recent period, but now plus coronavirus uh, and COVID-19, and now this huge explosion in the port of Beirut, uh, what we have is uh, a, a real meltdown um, of uh, the Lebanese economy to the point where, as I understand it, something like two-thirds of the population require food aid uh, from the UN and other such uh, agencies. I think that we can say safely uh, that um, uh, although we've had uh, Macron um, um, in uh, the country uh, calling for reform and uh, uh, basically uh, praising those that have gone out on the streets and demonstrating for a constitutional change, that uh, um, the real solution is not internal uh, to Lebanon uh, itself. It, it, it's the wider region. Now, I was reading, I thought, an interesting article in Al, Al Jazeera from their main correspondent in the Middle East and uh, Muran Bishara uh, was arguing that in a way uh, Lebanon stands as um, um, an example of what's happening in the wider region itself uh, that with the decline of oil prices with the threat of war with the reality of war with revolutionary situations turning to counter-revolutionary uh, situations with COVID-19, um, um, the situation in the Middle East um, uh, is in danger of itself becoming Lebanese, Lebanized, or um, 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 yeah, uh, the whole region is in danger of um, going into meltdown. He ends with this call: "It is only the people of the region uh, who are able." Uh, to do to to take a step away uh, from the brink um, that these people have had a history of the most peaceful, most enlightened revolt. Well, the precise problem is at the moment that while there is that history of enlightenment and revolt, we don't actually have any agency uh, to lead uh, an alternative. I was looking up uh, the Lebanese Communist Party, uh, for example. Uh, I'm not saying it's a model. Um, it's an official uh, communist uh, party, uh, but here is an organization um, that has never had uh, parliamentary uh, representation uh, in the Lebanese uh, parliament that is completely marginalized. Uh, what we do know is, in terms of history, uh, that um, in the Middle East there have been mass communist parties in Syria, 
mass communist parties uh, in Iraq and mass communist parties in other countries uh, of the Middle East. And clearly what we need is a Middle Eastern uh, solution uh, to this question. Um, uh, the idea that there can be a local solution, uh, I think, is um, delusional. Okay, just moving on. Coming towards uh, an end, very quick comment on COVID-19. Yeah, there's a danger of a so-called second wave um, um, in the winter. Uh, there's a, a rise in cases um, in some parts of Europe. America continues to be absolutely amazing in terms of uh, the irrationality uh, of um, Washington and their handling of it. But in Britain, we're starting to see the most, uh, uh, well, the clearest signs yet uh, that what we're dealing with isn't simply a medical crisis, uh, that we are dealing with an economic and therefore social uh, crisis. We've had the announcement uh, from BA, British uh, Airways, of 10,000 job losses and also in terms of cabin crew, ground crew and all the rest of it, uh, you know, pay cuts of up to 50%. Um, so in terms of unemployment, uh, in terms of purchasing power, uh, we are clearly dealing uh, with a, a major economic downturn uh, that's going to stand separately uh, to lockdown and uh, um, people are actually going down uh, with this horrible disease itself. We are dealing with a major economic downturn, the likes of which we've not seen since uh, 1929. And uh, although um, UNITE, uh, that's the Britain's, I think, now second largest union, is talking uh, about industrial action, the fact of the matter is, under these circumstances, British Airways is likely to turn round uh, if people go on strike and say, OK, you are sacked, and we'll take on those that uh, we've laid off, we'll take them on on reduced wages, but you're welcome back. Now, will those workers stand in solidarity with those uh, who are on strike? In the 1920s, they might have. Uh, in the 2020s, it's much less likely because the level of class consciousness and class solidarity is at a far lower level. So it's interesting, isn't it? it it's uh, amazing to look back at one of the uh, reprints that we've had recently in the Weekly Worker. I think this was from 1920 or 21, I'm not quite sure, but talking about the Communist Party uh, organising the unemployed, uh, that after World War I you had an economic downturn in Britain, workers who'd previously been in the war industries, people coming back from the trenches often faced unemployment. And what was noticeable um, is the ability of the Communist Party, one, to organise these people into a highly disciplined force, but also their ability to get a hearing from employed workers and the willingness of employed workers not to work overtime, to actually reduce hours in solidarity with workers. Will workers do that in 2020? I'm at least sceptical. So the danger is, under this... Um, 
um, economic downturn, under this economic crisis, we could see the employing class, the capitalist class, in league with uh, the government, this right-wing Tory government, using it as an opportunity to break trade union power. Um, so the teaching unions uh, will be um, interesting um, in that respect, as well as other cases in the private sector, such as BA. Also worthwhile commenting on Spain, not COVID-19, uh, but the flight of the um, ex-king Juan Carlos uh, to Abu Dhabi, uh, to a hotel, a seven-star hotel, apparently occupies an entire floor. Um, uh, my memory in that sense of um, um, uh, Carlos is twofold. One, I remember him as the chosen heir and successor of the dictator uh, Franco. Uh, he was trained as the heir and successor um, from being a young man. Um, and when Franco died, uh, there was an organized transition from Francoism uh, into NATO, into the EU and into a constitutional uh, monarchy. And that is something that involved negotiations uh, with the official Communist Party under their General Secretary, Santiago uh, Carrillo. And in 1981, I rem remember going to a meeting organized by the official um, um, CPGB branch locally, um, and it was addressed by a guy called Bill Alexander, and he was the commander of the British battalions um, in the um, Spanish Civil War. Um, and uh, this was at the time uh, of when uh, there was a, a rebellion uh, by Francoites, and they'd gone into Parliament, and they were shooting up um, into the um, roof of the building, and it took the intervention of the king uh, to quieten down uh, this rebellion. And Bill Alexander, um, who'd uh, fought uh, for the international brigades and for the Republican side, was full of praise uh, for this king. And indeed, I've recently read uh, in the bourgeois press uh, how uh, John, John Carlos was, was responsible for making uh, the Spanish communists into monarchists, uh, and that is indeed true. Lastly, in terms of that, I read uh, Pablo Inglésis, leader of uh, Podemos. One day, sooner or later, um, Spanish youth will be demanding a republic. So here we have uh, the leader of uh, Podemos uh, serving under a monarchy, serving in a capitalist government, because although the main partner uh, in the Spanish government today is the Socialist Workers' Party, this is the Socialist Workers' Party uh, that has as much to do with socialism and the working class as the German Social Democratic Party has to do with the social democracy of Babel and uh, Wilhelm uh, Liebknecht. It's got nothing to do uh, with social democracy, nothing to do with socialism, nothing to do uh, with the working class. So here's this guy serving, serving uh, in a capitalist government 
uh, in alliance with the capitalist party uh, under a hereditary monarchy, saying that someday uh, Spanish youth will be calling for a republic. Well, how about Podemos not serving um, in a monarchical uh, uh, government? How about Podemos actually breaking from the Socialist Workers' Party and leading uh, a campaign uh, for a republic uh, now, uh, not tomorrow? That's it. Thanks, Stan.